Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Stephen Pena, professor of philosophy at San Jacinto College, giving a paper entitled Marx, McIntyre, and Metahistory. talk here, which I haven't done actually in a long time, and I actually thought um, there was a, a paper I wrote for the North American Dictionary Society that I thought was really interesting, but then I decided no one here would probably find that very interesting, which was a comparison of unabridged dictionaries. <laughs> um, so, right, um, very dry. But, but it so happens that I had given a paper... Um, yeah, with that title, uh, Marx, McIntyre, Metahistory, Mapping a Historical Road to Utopia, at a, um, a conference called the North Texas Philosophical Association, which is UT Dallas. I'm not sure if it's held there every time, but it was this time, uh, this spring. And then also I gave it at uh, Notre Dame. They had a conference called To What End? Question mark. Uh, institutions, narrative institutions, and something. I don't remember what. Anyway, but it was sort of a, um, a commemoration of the 90th birthday of Alistair McIntyre. Um, so he, uh, I believe he has an office there still at the Center for Ethics and Culture. He's there every day. Every day, yeah. yeah. So he spoke to the group, I think it was Friday. This was in late July, I believe it was. Um, he uh, had, you know, had had to be assisted a little bit, I think, up the steps, as I recall. But uh, mentally, he's just as sharp as a tack, just really, really capable. Uh, gave a very interesting talk, and if I'm not mistaken, I think he uh, his last work was uh, what this year or last year published. A couple years ago, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, any, well, he's working on another one now. Okay. So, so right. So, yeah. so rather, rather interesting. So actually, um, th this was actually just sort of an extended abstract. Um, so you'll indulge me if I, I, I read a bit of it here. It's actually very, very short, but um, it, it wasn't finished, and so it ends rather abruptly. Uh, so it may be an obvious lacuna, or better yet, a simple error in my own thinking, one clearly discernible to all but me, to believe that there can be a particular intellectual sin that is in some sense ascribable to a given time period, a sort of diachronic flaw, if you will. But I will defer, given my aforesaid weakness, to the repeated sagacity of Mr. H.G. Wells in his observation that it was the particular propensity of 19th century writers, especially in regard to the social sciences, to believe that there was some sort of interpretive key that used properly would unlock truth, truth in all its nakedness. Such was the view of Spencer, of Comte, certainly a lot of others. And certainly it was the view of Karl Marx. But where putative interpretive keys are found in lesser hands, they fail to penetrate the deeper imagination of an ingenuous public. In the case of Marx, the materialist interpretation of history is anything but an isolate. It is, rather, an ostensible key that, perched as it is at such a high level of universality, will inevitably be productive of various laws, propensities, or even minimally general tendencies that may, with sufficient scrutiny and willingness,
be judged for their correspondence with empirical findings. For whatever their faults or shortcomings, scientific laws, if they are genuinely such in the way a positivist would use the term, are productive of consequences in the real world. That there be no mistake then about the consequences, some of them anyway, that Karl Marx despised in the horizon of Western civilization. For it is the consequences of the materialist interpretation of history that will form our focus here, rather than the soundness of Marx's historiography, a worthy but wholly separate matter of inquiry. These consequences should be of interest to us if no, for no other reason they form collectively a dire set of predictions offered by one of the great minds of the modern era, and a set of predictions, <coughs> moreover, that have convinced a coterie of other great minds of their correctness. Nevertheless, we actually do have another reason, and it is one that has for at least four decades been glaringly obvious to anyone even minimally interested in macroeconomic developments, namely that Marx, to put it plainly, has been proven indisputably correct in his claim that there is an intrinsic tendency within the capitalist system for capital and assets to accumulate in fewer and fewer hands. That such is the case is a proposition for which so much evidence has now been accumulated it would be at best mere tedium here to belabor it, but if you'd like a compendium of the latest research, uh, Thomas Piketty, the French writer's capitalist in the 21st, capital in the 21st century would be an excellent place for that. Whether or not this is truly an insightful or profound observation of Marx is another question that need not, need not concern us here. What is, however, worthy of our attention is that it is, it is the putative result of Marx's consistent application of his key. For the key, i.e., the materialist interpretation of history, is productive of laws, historical laws, and as was noted above, genuine laws have consequences, and consequences, finally, can be empirically verified. That is to say, the consequences that ostensibly flow follow from Marx's theory are productive of empirically falsifiable propositions. Thus, we may observe that some of the most salient propositions generated by the laws putatively arising from the materialist interpretation of history do indeed correspond with the empirical data of the historical development of capitalism. And I would stress there the word some. But Marx went on to derive much grander theses than what we've just considered. His materialist interpretive construct was fecund of yet broader predictions for the future of capitalism and thus for the future of Western civilization. Aside from the accuracy of these predictions, it is worth noting that after all, Marx made predictions that are entirely falsifiable. It is worth noting in light of the critique that Karl Popper inter alia, offered concerning Marx's work, namely, that it was unscientific and that it could not be tested. In this he used to justify relegating Marxism to the same dustbin wherein he had cast Freudianism. The prediction that concerns us here, arising, we recall, from the materialist interpretation of history, is that there must be a gradual secular decline of the West, that is, a decline of capitalism's homeland. Now, if nothing else strikes us as particularly salient about this prediction, it should be abundantly obvious, even to the most cursory observer of history, or as Lord Macaulay would have said, the silliest schoolgirl in England, that there should be no want of empirical data against which to measure the aforesaid proposition. For more than half a century, we've had what everyone must recognize as an overwhelming wealth of data on every aspect of human success, from economic prosperity to psychological and physiological well-being. And for over a century, we've had at least a dozen basic measures by which to judge. No, if Freudianism has a companion in that historical dustbin of poppers, the dustbin that holds theories that cannot be tested, it must be string theory. For Marx has provided us with an eminently testable prediction. In order, however, to place Marx and his ideas into perspective, 
we should do well to examine his intellectual offspring. And this is what I talked about in the abstract, if you, if you read that. And by this I mean those who have heralded the same dismal prediction about the future of the West and its culture. Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee made the degradation and eventual collapse of Western civilization the axis around which their respective philosophies revolved, and philosophies is indeed what they were. Despite the fact that Toynbee presented his work as an attempt to understand the inner workings of historical processes, um, a study of history, that's Toynbee's big magnum opus, was as much a work in philosophy as Spinoza's ethics. But unlike Spinoza, Toynbee was only minimally self-aware. Spengler was the elder of these intellectual brothers, and the decline of the West, published in the 1920s, was a far greater jolt to his countrymen than what the English experienced two decades later at the hands of the professorial Toynbee. Spengler held that all great cultures have parallel tracks of development. A culture, moreover, is organic, and its developmental trajectory can, in principle, be foreknown th through the laws of cultural growth and decay, laws that Spengler would have us to understand he has discovered. These parallel cross-cultural sequences of growth and decay indicate, for example, that religion will appear at the beginning and science toward the end, that is, of a culture's development. Again, simplistic and viral art forms are the norms at the start of a culture's history, and faddish frills in art make their appearance in its dying stage. There are, then, deep homologies between all cultures, and this simple fact makes possible the analysis of Western culture, an analysis which reveals that it has become, in fact, a civilization, i.e., it is dying. And that's um, the term civilization there, that's the sort of proprietary use that uh, Spengler has. For him, a civilization is a culture that is rotten. It's in its dying stage. And I don't know of anybody else, Toynbee or anyone, that uses the word that way. It's sort of a proprietary use. A proper study of the comparative morphology of cultures reveals much detail concerning the coming collapse, but it cannot prevent it. For the collapse of our culture is as inevitable as the sort of scientific development it has manifested. The laws of historical development demanded these things. Um, just, just out of curiosity, I wonder how many people here are actually familiar with Oswald Spengler. Have you heard of him? Most heard of. Heard of. The Decline of the West. Um, th this, is, this is interesting because, you know, in my reading, I don't know about yours, Chris, but you know, if you read Anglo-American writers, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, it is amazing to me, general intellectuals, from a Bertrand Russell to a George Orwell, Chesterton, Belloc, J.B.S. Haldane, um, Wells, they, it's almost as though they feel like they have to make an obligatory nod to two people. Freud is one of them. They all have to say something about Freud, and they do. And the other, to a lesser extent, was Oswald Spengler and the decline of the West. In the 1920s, this was a big jolt, and it was referenced everywhere. If you read, especially from the 1930s, yeah, it, it's just all over the place. People feel like they have to say something about it. Today, people, of course, you do hear the name Freud a bit. Um, however, if you want to be psychoanalyzed, don't expect your insurance to cover that um, <laughs> in, in anywhere. But um, you, everyone's familiar somewhat with psychoanalysis, but not Spengler. You don't hear Spengler's name very much, but it, it used to be bandied about quite a bit. How many of you are familiar with Arnold Toynbee? The British historian. Okay, Arnold Toynbee. Uh, if you go back to the early 1950s, was regularly called the world's greatest historian, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He wrote this massive work called A Study of History that took I don't know 35 years 
to write that was not quite as big a jolt as Spengler's, but it was immeasurable. It's, it's just everywhere he's being interviewed, cover of all the magazines. and um, A study of history, these tw 10 or 12 volumes, depending on the edition, is actually one long argument over, I don't know, seven, eight, 9,000 pages. It's, I, I, years ago, before I'd ever read it, I thought it was uh, a world history, much like the most famous world history in English, which is Wells, the outline of history. But it wasn't that at all. It's one long argument about the development of history, that there are these homologies among all cultures, 21 cultures, civilizations, I should say, have existed according to Toynbee, and all of them follow a certain pattern, which is, of course, somewhat what Spengler had said. And according to Toynbee and according to Spengler, and to some extent according to Alistair McIntyre, we are in the sunset of a culture or civilization. Toynbee prefers the word civilization. So if the laws demanded just a development we have seen, what was the initial state of the system such that the application of those historical laws would produce Western culture? This is where Spengler's debt to Nietzsche, both implied and overt, becomes clear. The materials upon which historical law works are those of the soil. That is, there is an aristocracy of blood in each great culture that forms the determining factor of its future development. So in other words, in every culture in the world, according to Spengler, there is a certain minority of people who are the real movers and shakers, the real doers, the real aristocratic blood of that culture. The great mass of the people in a culture are led by those of pure aristocratic blood, those who breathe the life of the soil and represent in its deepest and best form the purity of the culture. It is when this aristocracy of a culture is firmly in power that a culture will thrive and reach its zenith. It's summer in the schema of Spengler offers us. Western culture arrived at its summer in the 16th century. So for Spengler, there's a spring, summer, autumn, and fall of every culture. And once it reaches its summer, it begins some very gradual and secular decline. And as, it's, as, as Spengler, as I mentioned, he, he believes that we reached our summer here in the West in the 16th century. Um, I'll offer um, a cursory observation here. Um, that is to say, I think, and I would love for someone to push back in a Q&A about this, uh, I think we are seeing, one might say, to some extent, a recurrence of the Spenglerian view um, today. This particular aristocratic notion, Nietzschean notion, um, I think you can see it in Patrick Buchanan and Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, if you didn't know this, was the, um, shall I say, brain trust of the Trump campaign, if I can use that word a bit loosely. Um, the ideological uh, purveyor here and Patrick Buchanan was someone who said essentially the same things that Mr. Bannon said but mm. 10 or 15 or 20 years before that. Um, that is to say, if you compare the sort of, um, oh, the sort of concept of nationhood, of what it means to be a nationalist, of what it means to be a patriot, of the earlier manifestation of the conservative movement in Anglo-American tradition, that is Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, which was to some extent very cosmopolitan, very outward looking, um, uh, very pro-free trade and immigration, and compare it to mm -hmm. what we have today. 
um, which this, this revolution that the Trump campaign manifested, that Steve Bannon and Patrick Buchanan are the intellectual progenitors of, it is this blood and soil type stuff that was, of course, very, very foreign to that concept of nationalism and patriotism of the Reagan-Thatcher era. That is, this blood and soil stuff is its overtly racialist conception of what it means to be a patriot and, and nationalism and such is just very, very different. It's a, it's a throwback, actually, to a 1930s conservatism, I think. In fact, it is, it is in some sense, uh, very, very Russian in its nature. If you know uh, much about contemporary Russian writers, and Russian writers since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you know that there is this uh, broad uh, concept of Eurasianism. There's an idea that there's something about Holy Mother Russia, something in the soil, something special, something that makes us different in our blood, so to speak. And that's what's being picked up now in, in the Anglo-American tradition, both on, on both sides of the pond here, and expressed by people like Nigel Farage, um, actually by Gert Wilders also, and of course by Steve Bannon. And I, I would just throw that out there. It's sort of a, they're sort of new Oswald Spanglers. I have no idea if they have any familiarity with his work, but it seems to me that that's what's happening. Arnold Toynbee produced what many, especially in the 1940s and 50s, have considered to be the best example of modern histor British historiography. The massive 12-volume work sweeps over universal history in a way that even its critics have conceded is nothing less than majestic. But Toynbee was more philosopher than historian, and his central project, like Spengler, was to discern what the laws were that governed history, laws that he just knew had to exist. Of course, this sort of history is out of fashion today, perhaps rather I should say than an attempt to discern some universal laws of history, or even just some universal tendencies of historical development, would be career-ending. The culprit with the unfortunate temerity to broach such a suggestion would be swiftly informed that academics do not generalize on such a level. Well, let us set aside this objection to an out-of-fashion form of historiography, and notice instead the rather interesting fact that Toynbee, no associate or correspondent of Spengler, arrives nevertheless at exactly the same conclusion about the fate of Western culture, that it is doomed and we are living in its very twilight. Toynbee likewise sees all the world's great civilizations developing through the same series of phases. A people's fate is determined because the civilization of which they are a part is determined, and Western civilization reached its zenith, and hence the start of its long secular decline in the 16th century, that is, at the time of the Reformation, which Hilaire Belloc would be very happy about. You know, and I'm exaggerating, of course, when I say that it would be career-ending to generalize on that level. But I will note that, you know, academics who have had uh, the unfortunate um, history to uh, write a book that becomes very popular tend to get dismissed by academics. Isn't that right? From Joseph Campbell and Edith Hamilton to Mortimer Adler. To, um, few, few academics have managed to write popular books and keep the respect of their fellow academics. Uh, Toynbee experienced somewhat the same fate. Uh, I want to say he was uh, at University of London or Metropolitan, I'm not quite sure which, um, and he did lose the respect to some extent of his colleagues. Um, so uh, just an observation about that. Attempts to read great thinkers in terms of those who came before them are always suspect, as they should be. So likewise, however, are attempts to read great thinkers outside of the context of those who came before them. 
This is the eternal catch-22 that afflicts all honest intellectuals attempting to assess a person's work. Just where does originality begin? Harold Bloom, in The Anxiety of Influence, arrived at the conclusion that virtually nothing in modern literature is truly original. And yet, for all its persuasiveness, Bloom's thesis strikes me as, well, unoriginal. If Spengler and Toynbee engaged in projects of philosophical history that led them to the same set of dark conclusions, it is surely at least in part due to the influence of Marx, whose economic determinism provided the sociological framework for their philosophical theses. The increasing concentration of wealth made possible by the simultaneous increasing degradation of the enslaved masses, concomitant phenomena outlined in Marx's work, is the manifestation of the more important moral decadence of a declining civilization in the work of Spengler, and to an extent that of Toynbee. Nevertheless, Spengler and Toynbee are not the only intellectual offspring of Karl Marx. Alistair McIntyre, erstwhile Marxist himself, sees a West that is in dire need of moral renewal. <clears throat> that moral renewal, to be sure, is not to be found in liberal individualism, a mistaken belief he attributes even to Marx himself. That might not sound a bit incongruous to you that Marx would be called a liberal individualist, but according to McIntyre, he is. This is so in light of the fact that liberal individualism is as much a part of the decadent culture that nurtures it, the culture that is dying and in need of renewal. Such a dire situation demands a complete revolution in the social relationships that currently prevail in the societies of the West. Without such a revolution, the discussion of renewal is hopelessly and pathetically out of place. A gangrenous limb cannot be renewed, it must be excised. McIntyre's After Virtue outlined his view that the moral reasoning of the modern West is bereft of its rational moorings that were a product of traditional Judeo-Christian culture. The culture's largely disappeared, but its prevailing moral paradigm has not. While it might be presumed that McIntyre's suggested remedy would be to alter our moral paradigms. In fact, he suggests, we return our culture to a pre-modern synthesis, one that will give rise to a collective approach to a set of dialectically formulated problems in praxis. It is just here that McIntyre shares a perspective with another of these inheritors of Marx's critique, namely Toynbee. However disparate their analyses of the crisis of the West, Toynbee and McIntyre are in concert in their understanding of the required remedy a remedy that can be realized only with the proper historical perspective of the crisis. While a vanishingly small number of critics have perceived it, Toynbee assures us it is nevertheless at just that point in the history of the West when, on the traditional telling, the culture managed to break free of its rational fetters that, ironically, it began its long secular decline that has brought us to where we, now, we are now on the brink of the precipice. Irony takes a lot of forms, not, a, not all of them immediately discernible to those most in need of the discernment. The so-called revival of letters, the epic-making volte-face that schoolchildren are taught to call the Renaissance was in fact the rejection of a medieval synthesis that was uniquely capable of fostering the very flowering that the new epic supposedly represented. It was the medieval society and its remarkably cohesive culture that had provided the only truly universal institution the church. There is no doubt a certain allure to that set of certainties, regularities, and conformities that we are so often pleased to call the medieval synthesis. G.K. Chesterton thought that someday the world will have to adopt something like a papacy, a purely moral universal authority. And as I understand him, Chesterton meant 
even a, an entirely secular moral authority. But uh, for our success, we will have to eventually have that, something that's universal as a moral authority. A return to such a unified rational framework is, in the mind of Alistair MacIntyre, the only recourse to a West in crisis. In the closing chapter of After Virtue, we are warned that we have already entered the Dark Ages. The only real question is whether we can reemerge. MacIntyre then shares with Marx a salient feature conspicuously absent from the dark lamentations of Toynbee and Spengler, namely a considerably more sanguine perspective concerning the ultimate fate of Western civilization. Now, renewal is a highly context-dependent term, and we should be chary of its particularly promiscuous usage nowadays. But there can be no mistake that for Marx and MacIntyre, the coming collapse is bursting with coming potential, if person, person kind will but grasp it. We may contrast this with these other heirs of Marx and see the difference. Every culture, Herr Spengler held, has a four-season life, a spring, a summer, an autumn, and a winter. One of the surest signs of where a culture stands is the fact that in the autumn of every culture, art begins to give way to science. And perhaps it is just here that, like Oscar Wilde's forlorn hero, we finally see a portrait of ourselves. We see us for what we are and where we are in the winter of our civilization. It is not a winter that heralds a new coming spring for us, moreover. It is the collapse of a civilization that will see the torch of leadership pass to another culture one emerging into its own spring. As for Toynbee, that declining science of our culture has brought us nuclear weapons, with all their latent destruction waiting to burst upon us. Interestingly, if any part of humanity is to survive a nuclear holocaust, it is to be hoped, he tells us, that it will be the Congo pygmies, and this for reasons we cannot belabor here. It's actually a quite interesting part of Toynbee's thesis. It should be borne in mind that Marx expended a great deal more intellectual energy, developing his theory about capitalism, its workings and its ultimate fate, than on formulating a positive proposal about a future <coughs> communist economy. The failure to appreciate that simple fact is responsible, I believe, for so much of the misguided criticism of Marx's theoretical vision, a vision which admittedly leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Like the ancient Christians in regard to the fate of Rome, Marx thought a great deal more about the approaching decline and destruction than on building the utopia beyond the horizon. But perhaps consistency is a bourgeois conceit. Inevitable decline need not lead to dystopia, Marx and McIntyre seem to be telling us in this for several reasons. Dot, dot, dot. I swear it ends. I said it ends rather abruptly. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even in the middle of the sentence. Actually, though, um, I... I uh, I should mention where that thought was leading and what I was uh, going to say with that. Um, look, if there's anything that um, I think is central to uh, Alistair's Mac Alistair McIntyre's critique of modern moral philosophy, and I mean from Moore and Stevenson forward and even before Moore and Stevenson, um, that was not absent in the medieval period is the lack of a contextualizing telos to moral reasoning. And if I understand McIntyre correctly, that great um, Achilles heel of modern reasoning is something that we would have found in that medieval synthesis. And that essentially is something Arnold Toynbee was saying in a very different way many years before Alistair McIntyre. Arnold Toynbee held 
and this is the conclusion of a study of history, this massive 35-year work, um, that we have to have uh, a, a return to a universal church. Now, when Toynbee said a universal church, he didn't necessarily mean, of course, anything like the Vatican. He just meant that it could be that, it could be a different sort of manifestation. But we have to have this unifying telos. And that's what's lacking from modern moral reasoning. <clears throat> but it is what you find, interestingly, in Karl Marx. And so in this sense, I think uh, McIntyre, Toynbee, Spengler, but especially McIntyre and Toynbee are in some sense Marx's offspring. Um, to be sure, Toynbee uh, has some very different theses than, than, than McIntyre. They're not identical twins, they're fraternal twins, I would suggest. But in fact, they do share this central thesis that I think uh, can be discerned in their work. Thank you.